let's recap really quick. Uh, all of you that are regulars here at Restoration Church should have got a copy of the book, How Not to Read the Bible, as a Christmas present from us. This is a resource to try to help us be better students of the Bible. Statistically, Americans are not good Bible students. We are biblically illiterate. This is just statistics. It doesn't mean you personally. But many Christians do not read their Bible regularly. Many don't even pick it up Sunday to Sunday at all. If they do read it, they have never read it all in its entirety. And even beyond that, they don't actually take time to study it. And so... I believe, we say all the time, oh, we are people of the book. We value this book. If we're not reading it daily, if we're not reading all of it regularly, if we're not studying it, I would hesitate to say we do not value it. Um, if we are pulling verses out and just using them however we see fit, again, I don't think we value it. I think we're treating it very haphazardly. I think we're treating it very carelessly, in my opinion. And I think we need to become better students of the Word. And this is what that book is all about. For part one of the book is the foundation. And so in that part, there are four main points that he brings up. One, that the Bible is a library, not a book. Um, and now, there's not going to be like a buzzer that we follow you around with. And when you refer to the Bible as a book, we're going to be like, Meh. Um, this is not about just right or wrong answers, but it's about understanding and making sure that we sometimes do need to change our verbiage. Sometimes we have to intentionally change our language so that we're changing our thought process. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to start referring to this as a library, not as a book, because I want to make sure that in my subconscious that I'm understanding it. But again, there won't be a test and we won't be buzzing you. Um, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So to take this book and to read it in its English translation that you have in front of you, at least maybe some of you, uh, maybe some of you have a different translation in front of you other than English, but to take that in whatever language you're using it in means that it has come from another language, Hebrew or Greek, Aramaic, and been brought into this language. It also is about uh, 2,000 to maybe 4,000 years ago. And so I promise you that I sit in an English class where we, they were studying Beowulf. How many of you have ever read Beowulf? It's an English poem. I don't have a clue what they're saying. And that wasn't even written that long ago. In fact, all of those students didn't really have a clue what was being said. And it was English. <laughs> Old English, yes, but English. And so to think that we can just pick up this book and if just take the English version and just run with it, however, without really understanding who it was written to, what it meant to them, and then how we take that and apply it to our lives, uh, we're going to be in trouble and we're going to misuse it. And I think that's going to be apparent today. Number three, never read a Bible verse. In other words, don't just take a verse out of context, understand what it means, how it fits the rest of the Bible. And number four, the most important one, all of the Bible points to Jesus. Now, if you notice Dust of Emmaus Ministries, their main point comes from that where Jesus took the entire Old Testament and he explained to those two disciples who he was. Okay, so the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation, the library of books that you have in front of you, is meant to point us to Jesus. So part two then, and part three, four, five, six, all of them will take this foundational chapter, this part, three chapters actually, and it will 
wrestle with different topics. So last week, uh, the topic was some of those strange Old Testament laws. How do we make sense of them? And again, he's going to use those four main points to wrestle with that. Today, we're going to talk about the role of women. Now, some people have said, well, what Bible reading plan are we supposed to do? In fact, today I've titled this, Why Not Women? Boom. Why not women? Some people have said, well, um, you know, what Bible reading plan are we supposed to choose? Whichever one you want. Uh, I don't want to pick one because there's not a Bible reading plan that fits all. But I think you need to find a Bible reading plan that is going to take you through the scriptures, um, the full thing. I recommend the Bible Project. Um, There's tons of different reading plans from them, but there are other ones that are good and valuable. If you're having a hard time finding one, let me know. I'll help you find one. I just don't want to take time to go through some of those today. Um, But we're not also going to cover word for word everything in the chapters. There is so much in these chapters that I'm not touching on. I'm trusting that you're going to read it because a lot of the things I'm going to present are going to be conclusions that I've come to from my own study. I'm not going to show my work. This is an algebra class today. So I'm going to make some statements and you're going to be like, hey, how'd you get there? Read the chapters and then you'll see how I got there. Um, I'm just giving you enough to maybe excite you to read the chapter for yourself. So one other thing I want to clarify is as we go through this series, I don't want us to get to the point, knowledge puffs up. This isn't about just getting all the right answers. This isn't about just getting a seminary grasp on the, the Bible. Um, it's, about, it's not just about dispensing information to you. It's a process of discovery. Um, I don't want to sit up here and tell you all the answers. I want to help equip you to find the answers. I want you to become a student of the Bible. Because it's not about, find, I know as Americans this is so hard for us to believe. It's not about finding all the right answers in doctrine. It really isn't. It's, it's about interacting with the God who's revealing himself through this collection of books. It's about encountering him. It's about being transformed by him. And so if you're not in it, you're not encountering him. You say, oh, Pastor Tom, you can't say that. I pray every day. I encounter God. You encounter a form of God, sometimes in your own image. And there are people in our culture today that are doing that. They're encountering a God. And God, it could be God, um, but they're creating Him in their own image because they don't have a, an understanding of how He's revealed Himself in this book. <laughs> and I'm going to drive myself nuts with that today. I can't get it out of my head. And in Jesus Christ, he is the full revelation of who God was. And so I want us to be a people that don't just have all the right answers, but we get transformed. So as we talk about why not women, um, we're going to look at some of the difficult passages about women. He's going to, in the book, cover way more than I'm going to cover in this short time that we're going to have together today. Uh, One of the things that he talks about is the, the scripture that says, Um, the law, the Levitical law that says women are to marry their rapists. And people are like, what? Um, But you have to, he does a great job of putting that into context. One, it wasn't demanded. The woman did not have to say yes to that marriage relationship, but it was for her protection ultimately. So it, it was a way to make sure that her and maybe the unborn child were cared for in a certain way. So it put responsibility on the man that maybe raped this woman and wouldn't let him off scot-free. Okay, so you, you have to take some of these laws that we read in our English Bibles and we freak out. We're like, how could the Bible say that? Well, is it saying that? 
You have to make sure we become students of the Word so that we understand. And he does a fantastic job of going through that and so much more, the roles of women, what it looks like, um, what submission means. And, um, but I promise you, I promise you, keep in mind the idea I started service with, little by little. I think some, we misread some of the passages that deal with men and women's relationships I think God is trying to change culture, but he's trying to do it little by little. Um, So some of the slavery issues in the scripture, um, why doesn't the Bible just outlaw slavery? I think in a way it does. I think in a way the writers of the the scripture, one, slavery in their time was totally different than the chattel slavery uh, that we had in our modern day cultures, um, England and the Americas and others, the different type of slavery. But I do see them over and over asking for a transformation in the church to lead them away from slavery, to lead them away from the patriarchal culture that we see in the cultures around us. Because if you look at cultures throughout history and you look at the role of women in those cultures, by and large, I believe all of them treated women as inferior. All of them. Women were... Uh, In Greek cultures and even in our Western thoughts and interpretations, they were weaker. They were inferior physically, inferior intellectually. They were too emotional. And so men needed to be in charge and women needed to be in a subordinate role. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, why not women? Well, this by and large is why not women. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. That is why in our churches and in our Western world, Western Christian societies, women have been relegated to a subordinate role. I disagree with that English reading of the Scripture, just pulling it out of context and using it to make that a blanket statement. And we're going to get to that as we go through the service today. But that's ultimately why not women. So the chart, I wanted you to look at this chart. You can take a picture of it if you want, but it's in your book as well. Um, All I did was take it out of the book. And so what he does is he traces the role of women throughout the Scripture because that's really what we want to do. In the beginning, men and women were in harmony with God and with each other. Okay, that's the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, that's what we see. In Genesis chapter 3, we enter into the fall. The fall and sin has altered God's design. And as a result of that, he talks way more about this in the book, the idea of a patriarchal society where men are the dominant, men are the head of the household, men rule, and women are the subordinate role in the household, that comes out of the fall. There is no idea of that in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, That comes in Genesis chapter 3. Slavery and some other... uh, Issues are also in part of his chapter. Uh, Again, there's so much we could talk about. If you have two hours, we'll stay here and we'll talk through it all. But you don't, so we'll keep moving. There's a nuclear symbol that he uses right there um, to let you know that this is like boom. It's like a nuclear explosion that has happened. Section 3, oh, I love this, the wording of this. It is the redemptive trajectory through Jesus to become a community changing through Jesus to be what God intended in the beginning. 
So in other words, now because of what Jesus has done, we're actually little by little going back to what it was in the beginning. Okay, that's what's happening. And then the last one is the new heaven and new earth where we get to go fully back to the beginning. The full restoration to God's original design. And as I've already said over and over today, that's already started and you and I are called to keep striving for that full restoration in our lives. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. This is where we are in harmony with God and with each, in each other. And in Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock, all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, so let's look at that. Mankind, the word mankind right there is the Hebrew word Adam. Yes, the Hebrew word Adam. Adam actually comes from the root word for dirt which or ground, which is Adama. Uh-huh. Adama is ground. Ad- Adam are the people taken out of the ground. Now, Adam is used for humans, mankind, but it's also used for man. One specific man, Adam, also. So how do we know when it's humans, when it's man, And when it's one guy named Adam, like how do we know? We have to look at context, and a lot of it gets shaped by our bias. In fact, if you look at lots of different translations, in fact, if you look at Jewish translations of the Bible, they will not translate the word Adam as Adam or man until after Adam and Eve are presented to us in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, the word Adam in Jewish translations of the Bible will always call it human. God created a human. 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 There's so much in there. So, this is what he's done. He's created a human and he has a job for them to rule over the earth that he's created. Verse 27. God created Adam, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Isn't that interesting? Adam was created male and female. I know, it gets very confusing. Read the book. It maybe will make it a little bit more sense. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, have babies, make more humans, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. From the beginning, we have male and female. Male and female. Then we come, there's a whole lot in Genesis chapter 2. And some of you might be saying, well, Pastor Tom, what does this whole Adam, human, what does that mean? Hmm, wow. What does that mean? Yeah, Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. I don't know what it means. I'm still trying to figure out what it means. But what we need to know is, from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Adam, male and female, rule over the earth. Okay? Genesis chapter 3. Sin comes along and it alters God's original design. What we refer to as the curse. So God comes to Adam and Eve, and he comes to them in the garden, And in verse 16, this is what he says. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Now, because that has to do with them being fruitful and multiplying. Okay, so that's part of the curse that's happening. 
your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word desire, sometimes we like to think of that as sexual desire. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The same word is used in Cain when Cain is sin's desire is to master you, but you must rule over it. Um, so we don't think it's just sexual desire, but there's going to be this desire for companionship, but your husband is going to rule over you. What's being described here is a power struggle that is about to ensue. Before Genesis chapter 3, there was not a power struggle. Man and woman lived together in the garden, fulfilling their commission as husband and wife, as caretakers of God, as being fruitful and multiplying. For how long? We don't know. Was it like a couple days, a year, a thousand years? We don't know. There's no timetable here. We don't know what's happening. But we do know that there's a power struggle from Genesis chapter 3. And the question we don't like to ask questions of the Bible, but I'm starting to like to ask questions of the Bible, is, is God describing something or is he prescribing something in Genesis chapter 3? What do I mean by that? Is God saying, because of the fall, this is now what my will is. My will is for man to rule over women. Or is God describing what has now transpired because of the fall. Because of the fall, a power struggle is ensuing. So it's not God's will for mankind, man, to rule over women. It's just he's describing the power struggle that is about to ensue. I don't know, because we're only in Genesis chapter 3, so I, I'm just not sure. We talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about the dif difference between description and prescription in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees come to test Jesus, and they say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That was Jesus' response. Then look at verse 7. The Pharisees then say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So Moses, Moses comes along and he permits them to divorce. And Jesus goes back, he doesn't go to Moses, he goes back to the beginning, not the law of Moses. Why then is there this allowance for divorce? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. That's an example of prescription and description. When God comes along and says through Moses, all right, you can divorce your wife for these reasons. That is not God's prescription. He's not saying, all right, it's probably best if you divorce. He's saying, because of the nuclear bomb that went off and the power struggle, I am. The, it's a description. This is going to happen. It's not his will. Where, where do we find his will? <laughs> Jesus showed us back at the beginning. So when Jesus dies on the cross and he wants to put everything back together... I believe we are set on a trajectory back to the beginning where husbands and wives didn't rule over each other, but there was a mutual submission. We, point, we like to point to 
Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But it actually doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands. It says, verse 20, of, it's not on the, the screen, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. Or look it up later and write it down. Don't take my word for it. I could lie. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands. It doesn't repeat the word. Wives to your husbands, Christ to the church. Now we imply, oh, he means submit. But when you read the context, what is Paul talking about? I believe Paul is reversing the curse. He is trying to get them to come to a place where it's no longer about who's, who's in control, who's the head. It's, it's about both of us caring about the other person and bringing them into a relationship with Christ. It's not about who controls the checkbook or who does the chores or who. We have made it about so much stuff. And it's a, husbands, your job is to present your wife to Jesus as a spotless bride. That's your job. Wife, your job is to present your husband to the Lord as a spotless bride. I know it's weird because we're both brides, but we are. And so together we do that. Why didn't Paul just come in and say, hey, let's do away with all of these cultural biases and patriarchy and let's just have a complete society because they would have been rejected, I believe, by the rest of society. But I believe that Scripture teaches it goes against the grain of culture. Women, the way women are treated, everything in the New Testament goes against the grain of the way women are treated in the culture at large. And I believe the church is supposed to model that so that the world sees it and that restoration begins to take place. So when it comes to women, he goes through this in the book, all through the, the narrative of the book, you have to look at what's happening. We don't have time to go through the whole book, so let's just take little, little pieces as we go through. We have Miriam. Miriam serves with Moses and Aaron as a leader over the nation of Israel. Okay, we have her in that position. We have Deborah. Deborah is a judge who serves as a political commander over the people of Israel, judging their decisions. We have Huldah. Do you know who Huldah is? If you've read the chapter, you might know. But Huldah is found in 2 Kings chapter 22. She's a prophet and she's a woman. We have Esther. We have Ruth. We have Joel saying in Joel chapter... Joel's not a woman, by the way. We have the prophet Joel saying in verse, or chapter 2, verse 28, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. There is a time coming where women will prophesy. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who presents a beautiful... If you've never read Mary's words about the Messiah, what we call the Magnificat, in the story that Luke tells about... Mary has such a grasp on the Messiah and the Scriptures. Mary knew the Bible. Mary somehow was taught the Scriptures. Unless the Holy Spirit dropped every word of that into her head, which I don't think He did... Because culturally, I believe girls would have memorized the Torah just like boys. Mary had a grasp of the Scriptures. All through the ministry of Jesus, women are everywhere. And they are doing things that go against the cultural norms of what women should do. Do you know who the first person Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to? A woman. Not only that, a Samaritan woman. I love it. The gender and the racism punch all in the same thing. 
Jesus chose to reveal himself first to her. We have Phoebe, who Paul says is a deacon in the church, who Paul gives the letter that he wrote to the Romans to Phoebe to go and deliver. If you give a letter to someone to go and deliver, they are to read the letter and interpret the letter so that what Paul meant, he would, they would be sure that the church understood it so that they would not twist his words. Phoebe was the one Paul put in charge of teaching the church in Rome the letter that he wrote to them. In we have Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is teaching Apollos how to understand the Scriptures better. In Romans chapter 16, verse 6, we have this lady, Unia, who has been in prison with him. They are, she, she is called outstanding among the apostles. She's listed here with Andronicus, who is a man. But we have twisted this. Some translations will actually try to translate it as Unius in a masculine form. And they'll trace it back, and they'll be like, actually, it was changed. It was never about that. But if you actually study Greek culture at this time, or Hebrew culture at this time, you will find no record of a unius anywhere. But you will find that the word unia is a very common female name of this time. But because it doesn't fit our narrative, I mean, there can't be female apostles, Right? I mean, we're not even at 1 Timothy yet. But we're already trying to make sure that women don't have the power, right? God's plan overall, as I've said throughout this service today, is cultural change little by little. And I believe he's, bringing, he's trying to bring us back to what it was at the beginning. He does it in gender. He does it in slavery. He does it in all of the systems of this world. We as the church are not to be table flippers. We are to be people that infiltrate the society and little by little we bring kingdom. We bring kingdom everywhere we go. And people will be attracted to kingdom. They will. They have just yet to see it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. No Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. We are one in Christ. If you are Christ, you are Abraham seized, and you are heirs according to the promise. And now we regard that many... Many of our many people who disagree with me, I love them in the Lord. I believe they're strong believers. I don't have any qualms about their salvation. We disagree on these passages. And they will tell us that this refers to just salvation. <laughs> I would say you have a very narrow view of salvation. Because I believe as you look at salvation in the Scripture, it's not your ticket to heaven. It's not just entrance into the, a relationship with God. It's every part. It's wholeness. It's life. It's ministry. And so if we are heirs according to the promise, heirs according to salvation, then we stand before God perfectly capable of teaching, prophesying, doing all of it in the name of Jesus. So let's look quickly at two passages of Scripture. First, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and then the one in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'll try to do it in 10 minutes, and then I'll pray for you and let you go home. Okay? Can we do that? Can we agree on that? All right. Let's see how I do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing corrective letters. He is not writing to these churches saying, here is a systematic theology book that you can now know how all of this Christianity stuff works. 
What he is doing is he has heard there's a problem in these churches and he is writing letters to them to correct the problems that are there. Now within that, there is teaching that we can glean. But we have to make sure we are reading it from the idea, from the lens that he is correcting something. So when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, he is in the process of correcting how the manifestations of the Spirit happen in these corporate gatherings, and he's, he's launched into this talk about prophecy. So in context, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others judge. If anything is revealed to another that sits by, let the first keep silent. That goes against our American culture. If if you are sitting and I am talking and you have something to say, you wait till I'm done. But in the kingdom, I yield the floor. If you stand up and start prophesying, I don't talk louder to try to talk over you, I yield the floor. Because I don't have all truth. I don't have a corner on the market. And so what Paul, because I feel like I've been violated. I was speaking up here. Don't put me to the test on this, okay? (laughs) I feel nervous telling you this. But honestly, this is how church should operate. And I wonder how we can get back there. Trust me, I spend a lot of time talking about this and thinking about this. How do we get back there? Where we actually do this. Where where everybody has something to to bring and we we listen to one another. Okay, but yield the floor. That's going to be important. Remember it. All may prophesy one by one. Really? All? Okay, that all may learn. (laughs) That's not like all men, all. Okay, verse 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, which means don't blame the Holy Spirit for your bad mistakes. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, here's where it gets confusing. Let your women remain silent in the churches. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has given explicit instructions on how women should prophesy in the church. There is a prescription he gives for what they have to do in order to prophesy in the church. Why would he do that if right here he's telling them to be silent? I think I know, but let me keep going. Let your women remain silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They are commanded to be under obedience as the law says. By the way, there's nothing in the Levitical law that says women have to be silent. So what law is he talking about? He's not talking about Torah. He's talking about something else. Verse 35. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Uh Uh-huh. Did the word of God come from you? Or did it come to you only? There's a Roman, there's a Corinthian law that's very similar to what Paul is addressing here. And I believe he's correcting them. This has crept into the church where the men are using Corinthian law to say it's shameful for women to speak. And Paul is actually putting that in his letter and then he's responding with, what are you talking about? Do you think the word of God originated in Corinth? This is not how it should be. Mm. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge what I am writing to you as a command of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brothers, eagerly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Here's the thing. 
Lots of people agree with that translation. Lots of people, mostly in the assemblies of God, will line up with that theology. Not all people will. This isn't a hill to die on, but I believe, and Restoration Church believes, if you're a woman, you have the right to speak in the church, to teach in the church, and to prophesy in the church according to Scripture. But let's get back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 because that's a pesky one also. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now again, corrective letter. And if you read all of 1 Timothy, you're going to find that there's lots of false doctrine that Paul is bringing up over and over. Every chapter has something about some type of false teaching that has crept in. A lot of it has to do with widows and women that are called busybodies. This is where in Ephesus the temple of Artemis is. So women are highly sought after as uh, to be sexualized according to like the Artemis. So if you want special knowledge, then you have to go to the temple prostitutes. So there's all kinds of heresy revolving around women in the city of Ephesus. So when Paul says a woman should learn in quietness, that word quietness means yielding the floor. There are women in the church who are being loud and Paul is like, you need to yield the floor. Because they are somehow teaching a false doctrine and they are being loud about it and he says it's time for them to be quiet. When he says, I don't permit women to teach, literally that should be translated in the tense it is, I am not now permitting a woman to teach. That verb that is being used here throughout Greek language is never one time in any Greek language has ever been found to mean a permanent ban on anything. It has always been used as a temporary injunction of I am not letting this happen for now. This has to stop. And so if there is a false teaching happening around women and widows in Ephesus, it would be possible that Paul is coming in and saying we're going to rein back and we're going to not permit women to teach until we get this thing worked out. If it should never be taught anywhere, what do we do with Priscilla and Phoebe and Unia and all of the others? You cannot just take a Bible verse and make it mean something that contradicts other parts of Scripture. Then we go into verse 13. This is where it really gets good. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And all the men said, Amen. Don't you dare. Your wives will kill you. There's another false teaching that's happening in Ephesus. It's called Gnosticism. And if you study what Gnostic, parts of Gnosticism is the idea that you get this special knowledge and you, in order to get the special knowledge, you have to be initiated. You have, to do, you have to go through something and you get this special knowledge. And all through 1 Timothy, um, the Apostle Paul is coming against that. There's not the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the Scriptures. Like he is countering this special knowledge of Gnosticism. Gnosticism also elevates Eve over Adam. Because Eve ate the fruit first, Eve got special knowledge from the fruit because she went first. <laughs> Do you see how that's a problem? Because when she ate the fruit, she became a sinner, not special knowledge. That's what he's correcting here. 
This is not Paul saying uh, Adam was created first, so man is better than woman. Uh, Eve was deceived, so women are more gullible than men. That is not what he's saying. He is nowhere teaching that. That's not what this passage. He is confronting Gnosticism that says the woman got special knowledge from eating the fruit. He said, no, she got deceived and she became a sinner. He's correcting Gnosticism. Women saved through childbearing? What on earth is that even talking about? There's salvation only in Jesus Christ, unless he's referring back to the seed of the woman that is actually going to bring salvation and crush the serpent's head. That's what he's talking about. He's, talk, he's, not, he's taking some of the gender problems that are take, happening in Ephesus and he's correcting them. And if we take them in English and we just pull them off the page, we can become very chauvinistic about them and we can say women aren't allowed to teach because they're more gullible than men. And don't think that that's not being taught today. There are actually churches today that say women aren't allowed to be leaders or teachers in the church because they're too empathetic, they're too emotional, and they're too inclusive. I think Jesus was too empathetic, <laughs> too emotional, and too inclusive. And I think male and female are needed in the body of Christ. Why do, we make, why do we take time to go through this? Why do we take time to, to talk about it? Because this is more than about the role of women. This is how we ought to treat the Bible. Whenever there's something that makes it look like we should have power over others, can I tell you, nothing in the kingdom of God is power over. Nothing. It's always power under. We never exalt ourselves. We humble ourselves. Jesus demonstrated it. The ultimate kingdom example humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. No power over, power under. Now, again, you don't have to agree with the things that I presented. He'll go a little further in the book. Um, but, but dig in. Don't just take the English version of the Bible and run with it. Just this last two weeks, I had a friend that came to me. True story. Master's degree from a seminary in biblical studies. And he says, hey, you believe that women can teach in the church, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you have any good books on that? <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> How many do you want? And so I, I gave him the, the title of what I thought was the best one that I had. And he said to me, he said, you know, all my life, I've only taken that, the English translation of those passages, and that's how I've, I've based my theology. Seminary degree. And something happened that week, and he said, I started having conversations, and I started to dig into it, and there's a whole lot going on culturally and linguistically in those passages. I'm like, huh, you don't say. <laughs> I tell, I tell you that to tell you, you cannot just take the English at face value all the time. And I know what happens is the fear of the slippery slope. I feel the tension in the room right now. Pastor Tom, if we give in to feminism, the next thing you know, we're going to be giving in to everything and all this like social stuff and blah, blah, blah. No. No. I believe we need a way to study the Bible that is consistent throughout. I believe when we talk about gender 
and when we talk about sexuality, that the overall narrative of the Scripture will actually fit what we have in the beginning. In the beginning, He created them. Male and female, He created them. He brought them together as husband and wife, male and female. Nothing in this book will contradict that. I I guarantee you. I've studied it myself. So don't fear the slippery slope. Don't think that if we change our views on women and we change our views on slavery and we change our views, we start massaging these Greek words, Pastor Tom, we're going to like, soon we're going to just say everything's okay. No, not everything is going to change. But some of it will. And some of it needs to. Amen? All right, I took way too much time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. God, it is truly a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Forgive us for the ways we've mistreated it. Forgive us if we've been careless with it or casual with it in the past. And Holy Spirit, give us grace to be better students of your word. Give us grace to study it. Give us grace to be consistent with it. But God, help us not to become legalistic with it. When we miss a day of our Bible reading plan, God, give us grace. Give us grace to just start again. This isn't a race. And so I, I break off the, the con- condemning lies of our Sunday school teaching past that says you can't miss a day. That will actually cause us to try to catch up and miss things that we need to hear. God, just help us to be students of your word day after day. Help us to grow in our understanding of it. Help us to grow in our desire for it. And God, help us to grow in our practice of it. God, especially in the areas of relationships. I pray for husbands and wives today. God, I pray that you would break the power struggle that's happening in marriages, even in this room, even in those watching online. God, that each one would begin to serve the other. God, that you would give grace to each one in the role that they have in that family. Teach us all, God, to be servants of one another, not exercising power over, but embracing power under. Holy Spirit, help us to make better sense of everything that's in your word so that we can live it out before this world and be a part of what you're doing to put the world back together again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being patient with me today. Uh, These teaching series, man, they just light something up on the inside of me. Um, If you ever have questions about anything that we've covered, uh, anything you read in that book, I can't, I'm not telling you everything in that book is gold and true and infallible. This book is infallible. The other one we gave you for Christmas is not. Um, And so if you've ever have questions, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to have coffee with you or tea or whatever you drink. Um, And then we'll just, we'll talk about it together. Uh, If you want more resources, (laughs) I've got plenty. I'll plug you into it. But get in the word, become a better student of the word, and then put it into practice. Amen? Amen. Don't forget to stop by the table before you leave today. Thanks for being patient. God bless you as you go.